Welcome to ATRA, Voices from the Field. This sustainable agriculture podcast is presented by the National Center for Appropriate Technologies, ATRA, Sustainable Agriculture Program, with support from the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service. Hi, I'm Heather Lingle with NCAT. Thank you for joining us. In today's episode, we hear from Kara Kroger, Sustainable Agriculture Specialist at NCAT Southwest Regional Office in San Antonio, Texas. She interviews Molly Walton, the Land and Water Program Director for the Kavira Coalition in New Mexico. Molly has a Texas ranching background and has been working in northern New Mexico since 2006. She holds a Ph.D. in biology from the University of Dayton in Ohio. Kara and Molly discuss methods of slowing and sinking water on hillsides, slowing erosion, building soil, mitigating floods, enhancing groundwater replenishment, and improving overall habitat. They will also look at how livestock grazing factors into land restoration and erosion mitigation. Let's listen. Hello, everybody. I am Kara Kroger, and I'm a sustainable ag specialist. And today we are going to be interviewing Molly Walton on erosion control and mitigation, uh, as well as land restoration. We'll also be speaking a little bit about grazing practices and how grazing can both help and hinder erosion control. So uh, we'll go ahead and get into all those things today. But I'd like to start by introducing Molly, and uh, Molly has a very interesting background. Molly grew up on a ranch in the Texas Hill Country, and she spent a lot of her youth in the tri-state area of Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas. And the Southwest states are definitely dear to her heart, and she has worked diligently over the years to understand their ecology and the communities that live within those ecological systems. Um, After receiving her Ph.D. in biology from the University of Dayton in Ohio, Molly moved to New Mexico, uh, where she's been practicing restoration ecology for the past 14 years and working to regenerate a lot of degraded land there in New Mexico. So she's worked both with, with public and private land managers so after many years of working with the Covira Coalition as a volunteer, she joined their staff in 2012 as the Land and Water Program Director. And one of the main areas of focus in her job was to oversee the work to repair the hydrology and sloped wetlands along the Comanche Creek watershed in the beautiful Valle Vidal in the Carson National Forest in northern New Mexico. And the goal there is to improve the function of the ecosystem after many, many decades of overgrazing and extractive forestry and to enable land use for diverse stakeholders into the future. So this project is really interesting because it's a partnership called the Comanche Creek Working Group, and it includes the Valle Vidal Grazing Association, the Forest Service in the Carson National Forest, the New Mexico Environmental Department, the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish, Trout Unlimited, many talented restoration contractors, and many other partners and volunteers. So the program's been going on for about 19 years, and uh, these folks have healed incised stream channels, which in addition to bringing water back into the soil sponge, also slowly releases water into the creeks for fish habitat and other wildlife and produces more abundant meadows for cattle and elk to graze. So I'm excited to talk a little bit more about this project. I actually met Molly in the Valle Vidal working as a volunteer on the Comanche Creek watershed in 2018. And it's definitely an understatement to say that I was impressed by the project. Um, The work that's been being done there is incredibly innovative, challenging, very challenging and an inspiration to many people and a lot of a lot of new things new erosion uh, management tools and and different things like that were developed in this work so I, I must say you know the saying it takes a village well that is certainly a relevant statement when it comes to this project because so many people have come together to work on this project so um, today we're going to discuss some of the methods that the Comanche Creek Working Group has used and um, we will uh, start, I guess, Molly, if you wouldn't mind, before we get into the nitty-gritty of some of these methods, if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about, 
more about your work with the Comanche Creek Watershed and um, how the collaboration, especially with the Valle Vidal Grazing Association, went and why it was so important to the project. Okay, thank you, Kara. I just want to say that this Comanche project has just been such a great joy to work on. I work with so many talented, dedicated, generous people. The the working group, I believe, is just a really good example of collaborative restoration processes where every person brings to the table something that, that furthers the cause. And the Vidal Grazing Association has been a, a perfect example of this, and, and it's also an example of like patience and, and generosity. Um, for the first 10 years of the project, we really tried, the working group really tried to bring the Grazing Association to the table, you know, to talk about these restoration projects to be an active participant in the working group. And um, they they didn't come to the table for the first 10 years. And then, you know, we never stopped asking them. And once they sat down at the table with us, really, really good things started to happen. And they had a voice in, in the restoration and a buy-in to the restoration. And I'm, I'm sure you remember from your time volunteering up there that there were members of the Grazing Association who came to help us build these erosion control and restoration structures. And... I think that it's so important to have all of those voices at the table and the Comanche project is a good example of this. It's always like a really delicate balance between site conditions and grazing disturbance and it helps to have the different perspectives at the same table. And so one of the things that we realized in the course of this is that um, you know, we have to build our restoration structures a little bit differently. We need to build them to be more resilient and to withstand grazing pressure a little bit more and the grazers realize that they need to be a little bit more nimble in their grazing practices. And you know, the the combination of those two things just made the efforts that much more impactful on the ground. Yes, absolutely. And it really is a remarkable place when you're there and you're working in this big vast valley and you're surrounded by forests on, on all sides and in the middle, you're in these vast meadows and you can see the areas where you have uh, done restoration in the past and the areas that still need some restoration and just the difference when you're looking at those meadows and the color, the color of the meadow from the soil sponge being replenished in some areas and not in others. So it's a very beautiful beautiful place to to work. It is, so, and it's, it's really important to have the, the people who are many generations on the land there come to the table and inform the process. And then to also realize that all of the work that we are doing that improves the range condition actually puts money in their pocket. So it's a beneficial to all. Yeah, there are a lot of stakeholders involved. So, you know, from the list that I mentioned before, you are dealing with, obviously, people who are grazing cattle there. Is there still any timber being harvested from that area, or is that is that no longer happening? The the logging's not happening, but, you know, the, the forests are over thick, and so there are there is some controlled burning projects, managed mm -hmm. burns that, that occur. Okay. Yeah, and it is an incredibly popular place for recreation. So uh, Trout Unlimited was involved, right, because of because of the recreational use to some degree, I'd imagine, as well as just wanting to preserve um, different trout populations. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about Trout Unlimited and um, Toner Mitchell, in in particular. You know, they they round up a ton of the volunteers who come to the workshops. But we're lucky enough in in the Valle Vidal to have um, our state fish, which is the Rio Grande cutthroat trout, and it's you know it's in trouble, um, mostly due to water temperatures. And so, what we're hoping is that all of all of our work can contribute to reducing the stream temperatures to make better habitat for the trout. That's great. Can you also just for a minute briefly talk about the Kavira Coalition's part in that? The Quivira Coalition is an organization based in New Mexico that brings together a lot of ranchers and ecologists 
to come together and look at how different grazing practices and agricultural production can be innovative and regenerative to mm-hmm. a number of different lands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, synergistic. So can you just talk a little bit about the Kavira Coalition and, and how you got involved there? Okay, so the Kavira Coalition was founded in 1997 by two environmentalists from Sierra Club and a rancher who were going to meetings and realized that they had more in common around the natural resources than than they had differences. And so that begat the idea that we could work from the radical center, you know, where, where people could come together and find the areas that they agreed and work from there rather than being adversaries in the process. And so that, um, I must say, allows us to work with some just really fantastic people. If you are approaching any problem with the idea that we have more in common than not, you know, it, it makes a, a pleasant working environment. It allows um, you to gain traction, kind of like the example with having the Vibe at All Grazing Association come to the table. Benefits the land, it benefits them. You know, it, it has a, a positive effect. And And so... Um, just from my personal background, I grew up on a ranch, but I became an ecologist, and my dad wouldn't tell his ranching buddies that I was an ecologist, and as an ecologist, I, I stopped telling people that I grew up on a ranch because they just seemed opposed, and so when I found Kavira, I, found like, I felt like I'd really come home, you know, it was the place where you could be in both worlds. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that a lot of people feel that when they go to the Regenerate Conference or any of the other events that Kavira hosts. So that's great. Well, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about erosion and kind of just have have a little introduction to erosion. So let's just start by talking about well, I'm going to let you lead the lead the way on that. Give us a little intro to erosion, and maybe we can talk about some of the things like channelized flow versus sheet flow and some of those different terminology that we need to know uh, in order to understand erosion and its mitigation. Okay. So, you know, the defini- definition of erosion is moving soil particles from one location to another on the surface by the action of, of wind or water. And so to, to tackle erosion, you, you have to tackle bare ground. And bare ground um, allows the wind or water to pick up those particles and move it. If the ground is covered with, with vegetation or stone or you know, compost or organic matter, it, it doesn't provide wind or water the opportunity to pick up those soil particles and move them somewhere else. So it's, it's really about preventing erosion is about keeping the ground covered. Bare ground is enemy number one. That's something that, you know, in every introductory range or soil class, that's one of the refrains that you always hear. So prevention is, is wonderful. And then, you know, treating erosion is about interrupting those processes. And so you are interrupting the process by which wind can pick up soil particles or you're interrupting the process by which water can pick up soil particles. And, and what I know more about is water erosion over a surface. So when rain falls on the land, you know, rain is dispersed mostly. Even in a heavy storm, you know, it's multiple drops. It's not a hose that's turned onto the surface. And so when, when rain falls on the surface, it should move over the surface as a thin, continuous film until it either infiltrates or it gets concentrated into a channel in the surface. And so if you have plant cover over the land, you have a cushion that the rain falls on, and so you've already slowed it that that much and given it more opportunity to infiltrate. If it does reach the soil surface, you have multiple little dams that, that slow the water and help it to infiltrate. But if rain falls on bare ground where there's no cover, it is the movement is accelerated and it can pick up particles. But if you have continuous patches of bare ground, then you have a stream bed for the water to channelize. And the action of the water is moving soil particles, and so you're getting erosion in that aspect. And so one of the biggest things to look at when you're looking at the erosion potential of your property is the amount of bare ground that you have, and also is the bare ground connected 
so that you're giving water a fast path out of the system. Yes, that makes sense. And so when water is allowed to flow fast and these channelized flows begin, there is something that is called a head cut that can form uh, in a channelized flow. And those can be major uh, major causes of, of large circular erosion patterns in a pasture that can grow over time and, and remove a lot of soil and land that could be used for grazing or other aspects. So can you talk a little bit about uh, head cuts and some of the method, methods that you can use to prevent or remediate head cuts and just tell us anything else that we should know about that? Sure. So a head cut is a, it's an abrupt vertical drop in elevation. So think about it like a stair step. So if you if you were pouring water down a ramp, it would look one way, and if you were pouring it down a, a stair step, as it falls off the top of the step and it hits the next step, it has a lot of erosive energy, right? So you 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 have a lot more energy because of that vertical drop, and so then the water continually takes soil off of the the face of that head cut, the vertical face, and the head cut migrates upstream and a channel that's incised is the result of it downstream. So now you have, when water is falling off of the, you know, sheet flowing off the surface, you created a drop in elevation, which is going to increase the energy flow of the water of the surface. And so water is going to go down into that channel faster. It's not going to stay on your landscape as well. And there's, there's no process that that just stops the head cut unless you had like a huge rain event that deposited a bunch of sediment and buried the head cut. That can happen, but you want to keep them as small as possible if you have them because it's all about the energy of the water. You don't want to provide the water a high energy place to chew through the landscape. So, you know, there's a lot of techniques to, to treat a head cut in, in a hill slope. One of them is to, to starve the head cut. So if you can find a way to, to route water around that place of incision where the energy is concentrated and let it come back into the system slowly, you can starve it that way. Um, depending on, on the circumstances, you can also drown it. Like you could create a little pond. So when water comes over that surface, it's just flowing into water and you've drowned the head cut. Or you can stabilize it with um, a zuni bowl or a log step structure. And both of the, these structures, you know, kind of depend on what materials you have at the site that you can use. But they, they dissipate the energy. So a zuni bowl is a rock bowl that is fitted into the face of the head cut where there's no gap, you know, where the water's coming in. And so the water falls onto the hardened rock structure. It loses a lot of its energy, and then it goes on the path. And the log drops drop structures similar. We use a lot of those up at Comanche Creek just because we have a lot of timber available. Yes, that's great. And just for our listeners, we will be uh, posting some uh, references that you can look at to see visuals of some of the things that we're talking about today. It is hard to envision them sometimes. So if y'all want to look at the at the reference links, you can find visuals as well as the methods for remediation and prevention there too. So keep an eye out for those. Um, and I love, I love that you can often use the materials that you find on your land to, to remediate some of the issues that you have. So here in Texas, we have a lot of cedar, as well as in New Mexico, juniper, cedar, whichever whichever way you want to call it, um, which is very hardwood, and that can be used in some of these um, structures, and they can last a very, very long time because that wood is hardwood. But you can also use rocks and the contours of your land. Uh, so will you talk a little bit about laying things out on the contour of a slope and how the slope and the contours can be used to prevent erosion issues as well, please, Molly? Sure. So water <laughs> and gravity have this unbreakable relationship. So water is always going to go downhill, which is utterly predictable. And you want it to go as slowly down the hill as possible. So using the slope um, to 
to create places where the water can slow and sink into the hill slope is is really positive um, way to treat that to to store more water in the landscape. Yes. So uh, one of the ways that I've seen that done uh, here in Texas is they have just literally taken some of those large cedar logs and put them along the contour of the slope and allowed the, allowed those logs to sit there. And as, as sheet flow water comes down the slope, it generally tends to build soil up behind those logs, and it also slows down the water. So not only are you slowing the water, but you can be making more uh, more fertile land with the buildup of that soil, creating the soil sponge and which will allow more plants to populate also in those areas. Some people even spread some native seed uh, along those those contour lines where the logs are and start to try to uh, reintroduce more biodiversity to the area. So um, I've also seen uh, straw wattles used as well that can be put along the contour. So those are just some some examples there. Um, it's a good example of using erosion to work for you because you're you are harvesting the soil erosion from upslope and concentrating it in those areas where you're also concentrating water. Yes, exactly, um, and it it can be very inexpensive as well when you have a lot of cedar uh, wood and you you know instead of uh, burning it you can put it into these contour piles. And eventually, when it does break down, it just adds more organic matter to the soil as well. So, well, let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about um, about increasing the soil sponge. A lot of times, our soils have been degraded over time. So, let's talk a little bit about how how landscape lose lose their water storing capacity, and then how we can reestablish the soil sponge and allow it to be something that can take in and hold a lot of water. Sure. So again, I'll start with the the bare ground is enemy number one because it, it is not a sponge. You know, there there is not all the root space in there that channels water down into the soil and sustains the, the soil biotic community. And so Restoring the sponge means restoring cover or restoring the the connection with the water cycle and the mineral cycle. So um, it's a multi-pronged approach, right? Because you want to make water work harder and stay in the system longer, and you need to help it do that. And so establishing a plant community that's diverse and has many different root systems and is available over different times of the year is one of the keys to improving the soil. So the plant roots are breaking up any kind of compaction issues and they're feeding these microorganisms. The microorganisms are feeding aggregates in the soil in the soil and then, you know, they're helping the plant grow. The plants will shed you know, the leaves that aren't eaten, which adds to the the organic matter in the soil, which allows it to store much more water, which promotes the the underground biota, and then you start the cycle and and moving in a positive direction. And the you know, it's the the every part of that helps every other part of it. And one of the things about these types of um erosion control structures that that we're using, like you're talking about the you know, the berms on contour and some of these Bilzedike type structures that he pioneered for the Comanche Creek watershed that are that are erosion control structures are also structures that capture sediment and promote plant growth and so they also start that that positive feedback. So they're not just you know, they're not just stopping erosion, they're promoting, you know, plant growth and making the water work harder in the system before it leaves. And so that's the the soil sponge, and that's that's the goal that we're trying to get to is is not just plant growth for plant growth's sake or reduction of bare ground. It's to create this resilient system where every aspect of the system helps the other aspect in in keeping soil moisture there for plant growth, and and it creates a nice positive feedback loop. 
Absolutely. So I'd like to expand on that just a little bit more and talk about biodiversity in general. The more biodiversity you have both above ground and below ground is helpful for um, a lot of different reasons. But one of the main reasons with, with above ground biodiversity is because of the exuates that those roots excrete. And there's lots of different types of exuates, right? And um, many of those exuates contribute to aggregation, which you mentioned earlier. And aggregation is what kind of can can promote more per, uh, more porosity in the soil, right? So that that water has a place to go when it gets when it gets down into the soil. Um, another piece that maybe you could talk a little bit more about too, Molly, is mycorrhizal fungi, and uh, that how how much of a of a sponge it is in the soil when it's created. I know that when we have more biodiversity um, above ground, we have more biodiversity below ground. And um, the more biodiversity we have, we tend to have a greater fungal to bacterial ratio. And that's really important for increasing the soil sponge as well. Do you have anything more to say about the different types of mycorrhizal fungi and how they work to create the improve the soil sponge? Um, you know, the more biodiversity that you have above ground, the more biodiversity that you're going to have below ground. And, you know, the, we, we have this symbiotic relationship between the mycorrhizal fungi and different plant species, and we learn ever more about it all the time. And, um, you know, we think that, that grasses in particular have specific symbiotic relationships with mycorrhizal species, you know, we've, we find these relationships way back in the fossil record. And, and you, can, you know, many studies have been done where you try to grow a grass without a mycorrhizal fungi and it doesn't do as well. And, and the reason is, is that the grass, you know, is feeding these carbohydrates into this fungal network. And the fungal network is mobilizing nutrients to take back to the plants. And, you know, these relationships are very complicated you know we used to study them as like very species specific but we're finding out more now that um, you know this massive mycorrhizal fungi network you know these different species of fungi are sometimes connected to each other and you have this big underground growth so you know different plants of course utilize minerals in different concentrations and they exclude exudates like you said that have different compositions and so the more complex that system is, because of the plant biodiversity above ground, the more complex it can be below ground. And complexity and resiliency are very tied together. And so the more biodiverse community you can create, the more complex community you have, and then it's much more resilient to disturbances. And so keeping a diverse plant cover includes you know, all the different forms like forbs and grasses and shrubs and trees and annuals and perennials, you know, the, and cool season and warm season, the time that they're there. And then the that diversity will feed the soil year-round, which gives you more resiliency there. And so it's harder to break linkages when you have that complexity than when you have only a few species and those few species are only growing at a certain time of year. So an example of this is, you know, in, in the West, a lot of times we've lost a lot of our cool season grasses because every year they're grazed as the first thing that greens up and the pressure on them is immense and so then they're gone. And so when they're not there in abundance, um, you have uh, seasons where the soil is getting fed very little because you don't have a, a, a cool season plant that's feeding it until the warm season plants can come back. Right. And so with a lot more biodiversity, you'll get those cool season plants and warm season plants lasting longer in each of those seasons as well, which in the long term can be beneficial 
for livestock operations because you have more forage for, for longer periods of time as well. Um, so, yeah, all of those things are, are very important. I wanted to touch just for a minute on resiliency. You said biodiversity and resiliency are closely connected with regard to the soil and plant health, but it is also very important for the health of livestock, too. And when a animal can eat many, many different species of plants and pick and choose those plants, uh, they they can have more nutritious, they're fueled more nutrition, which then in turn allows uh, more nutritious uh, food products to come from those livestock as well. And then the humans get more nourished from that. So I think that that's really important to think about. And the other piece of that is animal health generally tends to improve. There is less illness and, and, and disease in animals who can eat a biodiverse diet over a, a monoculture diet. And that runs the same for humans as well. But let's, let's move on and talk a little bit more about grazing and erosion. Um, I just wanted to speak for a minute uh, about some principles that Dr. Alan Williams uh, has taught about with regard to adaptive, the adaptive grazing system. So adaptive grazing is, is, for those of you who don't know, is a little bit more in-depth grazing where you use multi, multiple paddocks that you rotate through, but it's not in a, in a planned way as much as it is looking at the system and the weather that has happened. Has there been rain? Has there not been rain? And what kind of growth have you, have you had? And uh, determining how long the, the cattle or other livestock will stay in that pasture um, to be most beneficial for both the cattle and the land. And adaptive grazing can off, oftentimes prevent erosion. So uh, Dr. Allen, Allen Williams shares uh, three principles. And so the first is the principle of compounding, which is our actions result in a series of compounding and cascading events that are either positive or negative. And then the second principle is the principle of diversity, which we've discussed. So highly diverse and complex pastures create positive compounding effects. And then the principle of disruption. Planned purposeful disruptions build resilient systems with more vigor and diversity and create positive compounding effects. So um, Molly, I know that you had mentioned talking about positive and negative feedback loops. And can you, can you speak on those with regard to grazing and erosion? And maybe you could even give some examples of some of the things that you saw in uh, the Comanche Creek watershed um, with how, how these things changed as you, saw, as you began working with the grazing association and once they became involved, what shifted in that project? What, what, became, what, what worked better? Okay, sure. The the differences in biology, you know, between a positive and negative feedback loop are that, you know, a positive feedback loop is one that amplifies the effect of a, a of a trigger. And so examples of this in biology are like fruit ripening, you know, how you can take something that's starting to ripen and put it with fruit that's not ripe and it triggers a ripening effect and it just moves forward. You know, childbirth is an example of this. Like it, it starts and all of the, the, you know, hormones and chemicals amplify it until you have an effect. Whereas a negative feedback loop shuts down or inhibits the effect. And so an example of this is like you get too hot, you start sweating to cool down, it, that shuts down you being too hot, you know. And, and so the, the definitions there are you know, either amplifying or inhibiting, it, it doesn't have a connotation of like the results are good or the results are bad. So a positive feedback loop um, doesn't mean beneficial. So soil erosion processes uh, positive feedback loops because erosion begets more erosion. Channelization causes more erosion. And so you want to interrupt positive feedback loops that are having a negative effect, but you want to shore up positive feedback loops that are that are beneficial to the system. So an, 
example of setting up the positive feedback loop would be if you're improving your plant cover and, and your biodiversity, that improves the soil, which improves the water holding capacity, which improves the plant community, which improves the amount of food available to animals in the system, and they they feed, excuse me they feed back into the mineral cycle, and the soil improves, and that improves the plant community, which you know improves the soil community, and you get a positive feedback loop. The healthier and more complex it is, it feeds into more health and complexity. And so, to create the positive feedback loop, you have to to think about it in terms of shoring up the things that are making that move forward. Um, if you're talking about the positive feedback loop and erosion, you're trying to introduce, you know, an inhibitor to that system. You're going to try to interrupt that positive feedback loop of erosion and change it into the positive feedback loop of increasing plant diversity. And so we go back to the, the bare ground is enemy number one and and trying to establish plants in that bare community is is really um, the most beneficial thing about erosion control. Yeah, and so in terms of, um, of grazing and creating positive feedback loops, if an area is overgrazed and you're removing all of that above ground diversity, you have removed some of what is initiating and, and feeding forward the effect, right? You've taken some of the driver out of that positive feedback loop. But on, on the same hand, if you are not grazing enough and you are over-resting, you're also inhibiting that positive feedback loop. An example would be if you have a lot of rank or decumbent um, desiccated grass because it didn't get removed through grazing, that is created a negative feedback loop for the plants that, that need to, to germinate and get the sunshine and they're not because they're shaded out by that dead growth. So it's a it's a delicate balance between the amount of disturbance you add to keep the positive feedback loop going and keep the system diverse, and and having the disturbance become you know an inhibiting factor. Right, right. Um, so it's a it's a fine line, and and that's why they call it adaptive grazing, right? Because when you are practicing. Uh, adaptive grazing, you're really looking at at what that disruption is is doing, and you're looking at the principle of diversity, and you're looking at the principle of compounding that I mentioned before, and the principle of disruption, and how do all of those three things work together, and you do it in an adaptive way so that those can all stay in balance and and not cause any of those those extra issues there. Um, well, I'd like to talk a little bit more around, about um, some of the structures that we can use to stabilize erosion. But first, before we do that, um, I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about one of your mentors, Bill Zedike. He's kind of a, a, uh, a famous uh, expert in the area of erosion. And I know that you worked with him a great deal on the uh, project in Comanche Creek Watershed. And I just would like to uh, mention his name and work. I know you know a lot about it so, so that other people can uh, maybe look him up and understand a little bit more about uh, what he has to offer. And then we can go into some of the, the structures um, that either he created or were, were created before, but kind of brought to the table um, with some of Bill's work. Okay, sure. Bill Zedike is, um, he's our restoration guru here out west. Um, Bill was a career forest service biologist, and when he retired, he started the second career as a riparian restoration specialist. And He's the author, um, one of the authors of a book called Let the Water Do the Work, and he has many other publications that he's done in, in conjunction with Kavira and also other other entities. He is a mentor to so many people. They're, they're um, we call them Bill Zedike disciples who've gone out in the world and become just incredible um, 
restoration contractors in their own right contributing really innovative ideas to the field. So his effect is is um, just truly incredible. And he's you know he's a wonderful human being. He's um, brilliant and humble and generous. So one of the things um, with Bill is to and Kavira is that the Comanche Creek was a a beta testing ground for a lot of Bill Zedike's ideas. Um, and it took some years to get some traction on those because a lot of his ideas are are human-built structures with materials found on site, logs and rocks. And um, he has a very gentle approach to restoration. And so I guess like the the big difference is a lot of our erosion control structures were forcing the water to do something. Think about like a dam or an impoundment or, you know, big rip wrap, just heavy, hard engineering structures that um, were trying to force the water to do something. And, and again, water and gravity have this relationship and the water's going to win. You know, the bigger the structure, sometimes that doesn't matter. You know, water has a way of finding its way downhill when it wants to. And so Bill's idea is that you let the water do the work. You coax the water where you want it to go. You use multiple gentle structures um, and, instead of, you know, creating this effect where the water is is hitting a barrier. This way the water is hitting kind of a filter um, that slows it down and dissipates the energy. So he's, he's about finding a gentle path and, um, you know, he's also about you know, addressing some of the the causes and not just the symptoms. So if you have an erosion problem in the creek, that means you probably have an erosion problem up the hill that you need to look at. And um, it cycles back into what you were talking about, about the, you know, the logs on contour on the slope, that um, some erosion is beneficial because you are capturing it with these structures and, and building soil that way. Yes, I'm. I'm having a vision right now of standing in the in the Valle Vidal with with Bill, and he was teaching us how to build a structure called uh, a media luna. And uh, I'll let you explain that in a minute. But uh, Bill's eighty. How old is Bill? Eighty-eight. He's eighty-four, eighty-five. I think. Eighty. Okay, eighty-four or eighty-five. So he he he's still trekking through the forest pretty efficiently and mm-hmm. he uses a cane but as we're sitting there building this media luna you know he's he's pointing with his cane and pointing to very specific rocks that need to go in a very specific place and it was it, it was it's a beautiful vision because he is very humble and he's very kind about it all and there's a lot of humor a super he's a superhero He's like super topography man. You know, I don't know. He can look at a landscape and tell a difference of a tenth of an inch and where the water's going to go while the rest of us are getting at our laser levels. So he's he's pretty yeah. amazing. I, I want to say that that's actually not a cane. For as long as I've known Bill, he's he's had that walking stick. And if you look back to um, the early 2000s when the Comanche Creek Project was going, he has that same walking stick that he's pointing where you know, people should put the next rock. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's more of a pointing much, tool then. It's it's a pointing device, yep. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well that's that's good to clarify for sure. Uh, well I think that the Media Luna is worth talking about as one of the structures uh for stabilizing erosion. Um well, before we go into that, I also want to say that, that Bill Zedike also has a book on how to build roads effectively so that you mm-hmm. prevent uh, head cuts and erosion and, and different things like that because roads are a major contributing factor to head cuts mm-hmm. that are down, down slope, right? And, um, oh, absolutely. So, and, and just yeah. interrupting the, the natural hydrology, that's called a good road lies easy on the land. And you can download that from the Kivira uh, Publications website. But that was the first thing they did in the Valle of it all, is they properly drained those roads. And it had a tremendous impact for the rest of the system. Yeah, it is a huge uh, a huge piece of the puzzle. And 
so many people when they go in and, and buy property, especially now a lot of folks in Texas are, are new landowners and they haven't had any introduction to that sort of thing. But if you're creating infrastructure on your property and you're putting roads in, that is number one. Uh, thing to think about is really how those are going to affect the landscape and from the big picture. So uh, can you talk a little bit about the Media Luna? Because I do think that that is, uh, you know, one great way to uh, think about road building. And then, you know, when, when runoff is coming off of a road, you can put one of these Media Luna structures there to disperse the water so that it doesn't become mm-hmm. um, a head cut. So please, please speak to that. So the Media Luna is, uh, you know, it's Spanish for half moon, and and it is a it's a, a structure that's a half moon. It's one rock deep, several rocks in width, and if you if you think about it, um, it is a water spreading structure. If the tips are facing uphill, so when when water hits something, it bounces off at a right angle, right? So this curved structure allows it to bounce around a little bit and then come back out as as dispersed flow. So it's a really good mechanism if your channel's not too incised to take the concentrated flow and redisperse it as it goes downhill. And um, it can also act as what we call a stable return. So it's what you were talking about is if you are draining water off the road in a one location, you don't want that to turn into a channelized flow that creates a you know, a gully down the slope. And so you can build the media luna as a stable return to take that water and then redisperse the flow. Yes. And so I think one of the other main concepts with the media luna is that both of the points that are facing uphill are at the same level, correct? They need to be They're at, at the, the same the, at the same elevation, and and if you build a media luna with the tips facing downhill, you can do that, but it means that you're trying to take dispersed flow and concentrate it. And so, you know, right. there are different applications where that is, um, you know, something that's desirable, but not as many as as returning to sheet flow. And we typically build them out of rocks, but um, you can build them out of of logs and and brush as well. And one of the other really beautiful things about the Media Luna is that, you know, you're concentrating nutrients and water. It's catching sediment. And so you have a higher plant growth there. And um, because of the way the rocks or the brush are structured, it, it kind of protects the base of the plants from grazing. So you have a fairly resilient little system set up there. Yeah, it was really interesting to see some of the media lunas that had been built in previous years uh, in the Comanche Creek watershed, and many of them were completely covered over in in foliage at that point. You could still see that there was something there, but there was a lot, you know, taller plant growth in that area because it hadn't been disturbed as much from from those rocks being below it. They, and they work in really dry systems too. I a lot of questions I get from producers are, well, this won't work where it's arid, and it absolutely will. We have some structures in um, the northern Chihuahuan Desert that we put in these media lunas, and and the plant growth within the media lunas is like three times what it is everywhere around. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so um, you know the rocks can also act as a mulch to preserve water. So you you are creating a structure that that spreads flow, but you're also creating kind of a little biodiversity hotspot. And one of the things that we've done is we've tried to seed plants under, you know, desirable plants under the, the media lunas, and they, they find their mm-hmm. way to germinate between, and, and you can establish a little different population in those. So they, they're an incredible tool that can be used in a lot of ways. And you can have many in a row, right? on a slope, kind of yeah. like what you were talking about with the, the logs on contour and um, the benefits multiply. Yeah. And with two or three people uh, working, you can build it in, in a very short period of time, which is nice. Um, and I guess probably the longest, uh, hardest part is collecting all the rocks that you need and getting them to the place where you want to put it. But the actual building of the structure itself can can go very quickly 
uh, as well, depending on how big it is. So I'd also like to uh, talk about um, Zuni bowls because um, I have seen on on many properties when there's a big, big head cut, right, where, you know, the the channelized flow has dropped and created elevation and created a big kind of circular pool, right, that that can Mm -hmm. just get out of control. And we see them on, I mean, I've seen them, on the majority of, of ranches that I go to in Texas, right? They're, they're there. Mm-hmm. And the solution for a lot of folks is to just put something in it, right? They're like, well, I'm just going to put a bunch mm-hmm. of rocks in here or I'm just going to put a bunch of brush in here. And in the big scheme of things, that actually makes it worse. And, of course, it's just kind of the first thing that comes to mind when people think about what to do without realizing that that's going to kind of blow it out even further. And so the Zuni Bowl is another, uh, Bill Zedek created that, correct? He did. Okay, so, so basically the Zuni Bowl um, is going to be a great remediation tool. So if you could tell us how that works, that would be great. Right. Zuni Bowl is um, it's a head cut treatment. And, and so what you're trying to do is create a rock bowl around the head cut to dissipate the energy of the head cut so that the head cut doesn't keep migrating up uphill. And so the most important part about that is that it's called a, a bowl. It's not called a Zuni uh, rock wall or anything. I've, when I've seen them built incorrectly, it's rocks stacked up on top of each other to make a little wall in, in the head cut, and there's still water running behind that rock wall. And so the most important thing about the Zuni bowl is that you marry the, the rocks lining the bowl with the erosional head cut. So you want water to come off the top of the head cut and hit the rock and and have the energy dissipated. A Zuni bowl is always um, has a, a splash apron down downhill of it. So you have the Zuni bowl mm-hmm. dissipates the energy, holds some water, and then the runoff out of that has an, a second opportunity to dissipate energy and collect sediment. And, um, and so just that that contact with the head cut surface is important because any water running behind that is is you just have a, a pretty rock bowl, but you still have a head cut that's actively eroding. Um, sometimes I think like these kind of horseshoe-shaped head cuts that you're talking about, um, they, they, they're smaller on the sides. Uh, and so if you're looking at the the source, you need to go uphill of the erosion and slow the water down before it reaches that head cut and falls over the surface. And so you can use those logs on contour, the contour berms and swales, or medialunas upstream. So you want to treat it upstream, and then you, you want to um, do anything you can to dissipate the water coming off of that head cut. So some of the head cuts, if they're, if they're like, I don't know, six to eight inches or less on the sides of the horseshoe. Um, a technique that I've seen some people use is that they'll put the cattle mineral block there and they'll use the cattle to knock down that sharp edge and smooth out those sides. And so then you're back to sheet flow instead of like this this drop off. And so, you know, a lot of the, the managed grazing, you can use a, the cattle as a tool, as a bulldozer to, to do some of the shaping that you want if you can if you can concentrate their disturbance in an area that you want it and then remove it when you no longer need it. That's a great point. And these Zuni bowls can be quite beautiful as well when they're done, uh, just the stacked rocks within that. Uh, if you, One of the things that I saw when I did the workshop with you this uh, in February, was that February, uh, was <laughs> the Zuni bowl had been created there and then they had put, some of the cedar brush over the Zuni bowl to keep the cattle off of it. So you can also mm-hmm. put a little brush over it, right, to keep cattle off when, if you don't want to be using, once you've created the Zuni bowl, you don't really want the cattle on it. So, um, Right. It, it, cows, are, cows are curious and they, they'll stand on top of it and try to figure out how it works. And so, yeah, the giving giving the the vegetation the chance to establish between the rocks after you've made it for a year or two is really beneficial to how long it's going to last. Yes, yes. 
And so with the Zuni Bowls, I definitely recommend that you read up on it quite a bit before you uh, start creating one because there there is some definite points that you need to take into consideration to make sure that it, it lasts and works. And I would say that like a small Zuni Bowls within it, if you're talking about a head cut that's two or three feet in depth, you know, I I would recommend hiring a restoration contractor who specializes in that because they can get their, right. you know, equipment in there and use larger rocks. Um, you know, the size of the head cut and the size of the materials are, are um, important factors. You know, the bigger the head cut, the bigger the rocks, which may mean that you need to use some dyno-powered uh, equipment mm-hmm. to put it together. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I think we're getting uh, to the top of the hour here, and I am wondering if there's anything else that you want to share before we wrap up today. Well, I I would share a a build Zedike-ism that I've shared most workshops. And, um, you know, he says, it's kind of a Yogi Berra type thing, is that when things stop getting worse, they start getting better. And so just starting to think about those feedback loops and how to make things better, you know, one small action will mean that things are stopping getting worse and they're starting getting better. Yes, that's great. That's great. And and there's there's so many other types of things that we could go into today, but we're a little short on time and also just the fact that we can't show you the visuals. So I want to remind you all that there will be some resources in the podcast link. Please check them out. But before we end, are there any other resources that you just want to mention verbally here, Molly, that people can access uh, for learning more about these things we've discussed today? Sure. Well, the Cura Coalition has a, a publications page that has a lot of publications that you can download as PDF and also just links for, you know, where you can find um, books like Bill's book. And I'm, you know, your organization, of course, is another wonderful resource. There's a lot of good small nonprofits that that share information. Um, I think YouTube is one of the very best places to see um, what some of these folks have done. A lot of these restoration contractors will actually show you um, projects that they've done. And I know Bill, there's several videos uh, featuring Bill. And so it's like YouTube University is a good place to start. Indeed, yes, yes. And is the Comanche Creek Working Group still doing a restoration this coming summer? Will they have a volunteer group going out there this summer? Um, not this summer. The the virus has made us not want to congregate anybody. So this mm-hmm. we're taking a hiatus this year. The working group is still active and will be. You know, one of the the things that the working group um, was spearheaded by Kavira does is we write the grants and raise the money for these workshops. And so we're always trying to keep the restoration going. But unfortunately, this year we felt like it was um, maybe not a good idea. <laughs> it yeah. is kind of close working quarters when you're when you're out there with people and you know moving rocks together and things like that. But I do want to just recommend for our listeners to they've got time in the summer and they want to go spend a few days in a really beautiful place, working hard but meeting really wonderful people and learning amazing information, then that is a great place to go, um, do that kind of work. And you get to camp and spend time in a gorgeous place, and I highly recommend it. I'd like to go back at some point myself. So anyway, well, thank you, Molly, very much for joining us today. I know that this is going to be helpful to a lot of people, and as you know, Molly, I head up a project called Soil for Water with uh, NCAT, and that is an initiative to teach people to catch and hold more water in their soils. A lot of that is through understanding um, grazing management, but we also work with a lot of different producers too. Um, so I am looking forward to hopefully doing some workshops with you in person, Molly, as uh, COVID 
finesses, I hope. <laughs> and <laughs> hopefully so. We can move around in the world again, but uh, that way we can teach people how to actually physically do some of these things together and improve their land and, and all of that. So again, thank you very much. If y'all are interested in, in learning more about Soul for Water, you can go to soulforwater.org. And is Kavira's website kaviracoalition.org? Dot org, right, yes. Okay. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity today, Kara. Absolutely. Well, we were really glad to have you. Thank you for listening to ATRA, Voices from the Field. If you can, take a moment to leave a comment, share, and subscribe. This really helps us get the word out about our great sustainable agriculture programs. And be sure to check out all of our resources at the ATRA website using the link provided. We'll catch you next week. And until then, keep on farming.